This is Deep Dish from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, a weekly podcast going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, Vice President of Studies at the Council, and I'm here with two of our fellows, Carl Friedhoff. It's good to have you here, Carl. Hello, thank you. And Cecile Shea, thanks for being here. Hi, Brian, thanks. Today we're gonna talk about the incoming administration of Donald Trump and Asia, as well as the relationships with our allies, with US allies in in Asia. And let me start there. Uh, Who are the key US allies in Asia and what do they do for us? Well, we have five treaty allies and one special relationship in Asia. Um, One of those treaty allies and the one that I happen to think is the most important by a considerable margin is Japan. We do have over 50,000 troops stationed in Japan at any time. The Japanese pay between four and six billion dollars a year to defray the costs Mm -hmm. of those troops being there. So when people say that it's free security, it's not free security. Actually, they are paying most of the cost of our troops being there. The Japanese also have a significant military, which they do not call a military for historical reasons. They call it a self-defense force. So the legacy of World War II and being a non-aggressive. And their constitution, um, Mm -hmm. which says that they will defend their country. They will not engage in um, aggressive acts. So, but they do have a very advanced military um, equipped with all of our high-end military equipment purchased from the United States. Secondly, we have Korea, where we have 28,500 troops um, positioned at any given time. And Korea also pays a considerable amount of the expense of having those troops there, close to a billion dollars. Yeah, it's about 900 million. 900 million dollars, and they're building us a beautiful new base Mm -hmm. um, to replace the one that's in downtown Seoul. At their expense. At their expense, at their expense. And they also have a very good military. They have different purposes, obviously. They are really focused on self-defense from the north, so they buy different kinds of equipment. For Koreans, defense is something that is very, very real and very, very personal because when you walk around Seoul, you are never more than 10 steps away from a shelter because they are always worried about an attack from the north as they lived through for so many years during the Korean War. We then have the Philippines and Thailand, which are both treaty allies. We formerly had bases at the Philippines. We have started using those bases again, but we do not base troops there permanently. And Australia, which is a very important ally of the U.S. and which served with us in every war that we have had since World War I. Um, And we have rotational forces in Australia. And then the special relationship is Singapore. We also have rotational forces in Singapore. They've built us some beautiful berths for our naval vessels there. And then the last unusual situation is with New Zealand. Um, We technically have a three-way treaty with Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S. New Zealand stopped participating in the treaty for many years. They now are participating. So the question is, how are we going to build that military and security relationship in the future? Terrific. So those are our allies. And I know that one of the biggest concerns that we have in or challenges that we have in Asia is the rise of China. China obviously becoming much more wealthy uh, and at the same time being more assertive in its own foreign policy uh, in the region. And and that is really the biggest challenge that we that we face. Carl, you talked, you wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, last week and talked about the challenges faced by President Trump in the region. What do you think the most important challenges that he's going to face are? 
Well, so we, we talk about a rising China, you know, this is going to be a big challenge for U.S. policy kind of coming in and it's going to face his administration. But there's also a secondary challenge. It's not only not only dealing with a rising China, but dealing with the fact that our allies all have different interpretations of what that means for them and their their personal or their their national interest. So you take the the relationship between South Korea and Japan specifically. You know, Japan, I was recently in Tokyo and, and in no uncertain terms through a series of meetings, they made it very clear that they see China as an adversary and they're looking for uh, closer closer cooperation with the United States on that on that kind of line of thought. But if you go to South Korea, they don't necessarily see China that way. You know, they're more worried about China's influence over North Korea, and they are very hesitant to take an adversarial position with China. And in fact, in, in some of the security things that have already been going on with the, the placement of a U.S. missile battery, anti-missile defense battery, uh, now south in the southern part of, of Korea, you know, it sparked what looks like a, Chine, a Chinese retaliation. Um, across e economics and across you know, certain visa procedures. And so they're already kind of feeling the brunt and they do not want that to get any worse. So even among U.S. allies, there's a division on how they're thinking about China. Um, after I was in Tokyo, I went to Thailand as well and I met with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs there. And they were kind of fairly open in saying that, yes, the, the relationship with the United States is difficult right now, it's improving, but still difficult. But at the same time, our relationship with China is important. And from, from the Thai perspective, they are open to doing business with anyone who can, can help Thai interest. And so they, again, they have a different view on, on the rise of China. So kind of corralling all of our allies and trying to balance them out and serve everyone's interests at the same time is going to be a very difficult task. One of the things, one of the lines that Donald Trump took in the campaign was uh, one where he was very critical of our allies, that they're not doing enough, and, and suggested that the United States may not even be all that interested mm -hmm. in coming to their, into their defense, uh, which would imply that these countries would need to do a lot more themselves. Now, that's campaign rhetoric. What is the sense in the region of what a Trump presidency means for their relationship with the U.S. What and which interest we are going to pursue in the region. So my impression that I came away with from my visit to Tokyo was that they were, while while they are worried about what this is going to mean for trade, and that that is going to certainly have an impact on their economy. Um, when it comes to China, I think they're going to be somewhat on more on the positive side that they're looking forward to a harder line stance on China from a Trump administration with lines up with how they're going to view China uh, a little bit more. Um, for, for South Korea, I think they're, they're going to be quite concerned. So, I mean, let's just take a step back because there's two issues that have come out um, throughout the Trump campaign, which are TPP and the loss TPP, of TPP, which is the TPP, trans, which is the trans, right. excuse, thank you, the Trans-Pacific <laughs> Partnership, which um, is a multilateral or a regional um, trade agreement that the U.S. took the lead on, really strong-armed a number of politicians into pushing it through their parliaments. Um, these politicians took great political risk in supporting TPP, getting it passed. They would occasionally ask the U.S., but are you sure you're going to get it through Congress? Oh, yeah, don't worry about us. That's our mm -hmm. problem. You guys worry about yourselves. They passed it, and now we are not going to sign on to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Trump administration has said again within the last 48 hours. And this has really cost us in several ways. First of all, people are wondering how good our word is anymore. These are people who took a lot of political risk on, on our promise, and then we did not keep that promise. 
Secondly, if we're not going to show trade leadership in the region, who else will? Well, then it's the second largest economy in the world, which is China. And China is already going out and trying to put together a multilateral trade relationship, which, of which it will be the center and which will cut the United States out. The goal of TPP was to avoid that, was to make sure that we would be leading in the region, that our open rules-based economy would be the model that these countries would be following. And it appears now that things may be um, moving in another direction. Part, part, of, part of the importance of that as well is, is, is having the U.S. lead on that. They kind of set the gold standard for a lot of their trade deals to make sure that you know, if, if companies are allowed to do business here in the U.S., that US, the U.S. companies are going to have equal access, maybe not immediately, but tariffs are going to be, be lowered over time. Um, you know, I know from looking at the, the Korea-China trade deal, if that's going to be any kind of example for, for what this RCEP, this other, this other China-led uh, trade deal is going to be, that the standards are going to be lower. And so then you'll have all of these other economies throughout the region who participate in this. They won't necessarily be rolling back a lot of their, their tariffs. And so it's going to be increasingly difficult for U.S. companies to do business in, in the same way. And the Trans-Pacific Partnership was about a lot more than tariffs. Right. It included modernizing labor practices, which would have been very important in Vietnam. Vietnam was an enthusiastic participant in the TPP negotiations. It would have been great to have them modernize their labor practices so that our workers would have been competing on a more level playing field with the Vietnamese workers. Right. And the same can be said in terms of every country. Every country was going to modernize or open something having to do with trade. For instance, Japan was going to open its insurance market. It would have been very important to the insurance industry in the United States to be able to sell more of its products in the third largest economy in the world. And understand another uh, another sector was the agriculture sector, where U.S. exporters were going to have much greater access to the Japanese market. And it wasn't only that; it wasn't only interest from the U.S. side. But the Japanese are quite disappointed that TPP has fallen through because this was a way for them to finally start to wean their agriculture uh, sector off of subsidies. Mm-hmm. So they're heavily subsidized. You know, all of the Japanese farmers their their average age is very high because young Japanese, much like in other parts of East Asia, specifically South Korea, that the the young the young citizens don't want to follow their parents, if that is the case, into farming. You know, they're more apt to move into the city, look for white-collar jobs or something that is going to draw on their education a bit more. And so far, they've been unable to modernize that sector in Japan. And so this TPP was a way that they saw as the first steps to really take towards doing that. And now that it's off the table, they are, are wondering how they're going to do that because a big part of Prime Minister Abe's uh, kind of mandate was this Abenomics, the fact that he was going to come in and jumpstart the economy, and the agricultural sector was a core part of that. And now they're, they're concerned about how they're going to be able to accomplish that. So this is interesting. Both you guys are talking about ways in which U.S. seeding leadership is actually damaging to the countries in the region, right? They, these countries can't achieve goals they care about without the U.S. playing an active role. Well, absolutely. And let's talk about another way, which is it is unclear if President-elect if President Trump is willing to maintain military and security leadership in the region. Seventy years of U.S. military presence in Asia has had profound positive effects for the United States. First of all, the countries of Asia have not had to focus on arms races and on small wars amongst themselves. Instead, they've been able to focus on social and economic development. And what that has meant is the Asian economic miracle, which has provided the U.S. its single most important market. 
millions of American jobs are dependent on the Asian economic miracle continuing. Secondly, the U.S. military presence and leadership in Asia have meant that countries do not have to feel anxious about the future. They don't have to feel anxious about their, secu their security. And that lack of anxiety and the knowledge that the U.S. is there to ensure that the Soviet Union, when it was around, now Russia, that China are not going to invade these countries have meant for the U.S. 70 years without a major trans-Pacific war of the type that we had in World War II. How do you calculate the value of no World War III in the Pacific? I mean, it's incalculable. And the thought that we may be pulling back from some of those commitments, that we may be pulling back some of our presence from Asia is deeply concerning to our Asian friends. I think it's deeply concerning to a lot of people in China, frankly. And it's certainly very concerning to any American who has valued the economic opportunities that Asia has brought us, but also the peace and security that we have had over these last 70 years. Yeah, there's there's this line of argument called, you know, the, the argument for keeping East Asia abnormal. You know, if you think about political theory, there's the normalized state where all states are responsible for their own security. And that hasn't been true in, in East Asia for quite some time. And I've heard that, that said on many occasions, both in Japan and in Korea, that they have an interest in keeping East Asia abnormal. They want the U.S. to, to be there to continue to uh, kind of ensure everyone's security. And on, on the, the Korean side, the worry is that the Japanese will start to spend a lot of money on, on GDR, of their, like a rising above the 1% of GDP, which right now they're capped at. And from the Japanese side, they're worried that you know, they'll, they'll begin to get into an arms race with China, which is, is going to endanger everyone. And that leads to a really important question, which is, when Rex Tillerson made his comments about the South China Sea during his Senate confirmation hearings. And what did he say? What were those comments or the thrust of them? So just to back up a bit, uh, the South China Sea is an area in which there are conflicting claims among seven or eight countries, mm -hmm. um, including China. Um, and and it's very problematic for trade in the entire world, not to mention just general peace and security, because an enormous amount of the world's oil and other commodities flow through the South China Sea. So maintaining those open lines of communication, as naval people call them, <laughs> is very, very, very important. And um, Mr. Tillerson was asked a question about the South China Sea, and he indicated that he was willing to block China's access to some of the man-made islands. And I think he may have been referring to possibly one of their oil um, platforms mm. that they've built there also, that he would be willing to block access. Well. First of all, the U.S. does not recognize anyone's claims on much of that water. We think it needs to go to some kind of international arbitration. And secondly, some of those areas that he was speaking about, we think no one has a claim on, that those are open for open navigation. And so whether he misspoke and really wasn't talking about a blockade against China and what amount to open sea lanes, or whether he is really willing to be that hawkish on the South China Sea has caused a lot of heartburn um, in many communities, both in Asia and in the United States, because we want to stand up to China when appropriate. What we don't want to do is foment really anxiety-ridden relationships with them in the security realm. And I think what is notable about that is even in the time since he, he delivered his testimony or during his, his hearing in front, of, in front of the Congress, that he's had time to go back and withdraw those comments, but he hasn't. 
and no one from the administration, as far as I've seen, has come out and said, well, you know, there was a, this was a mistake on his part, you know, part of a grueling uh, hearing process. That has never come. And so that's also additionally worrying. And there were two leaks from the transition, and they were kind of in opposition to each other. One said, oh, that's really not what he meant. He just didn't have enough time to prepare. And the other one said, no, 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 we're really going to stand up to the Chinese in the South China Sea. So this is, if, if it is President-elect Trump's um, goal to be unpredictable and to keep everybody slightly off balance, I think he is really succeeding when it comes <laughs> to East Asia at this point. Yeah, so what What are the implications of this? We've got two very different messages. Trump saying, you know, we may pull back from there. You've got his designate for the Secretary of State being very hawkish. What do countries in the region do? What? How are they responding, and what are the policies that they may adopt in response? From the perspective of Japan, I, I'd expect them to to kind of continue where they're already at on China. They're going to continue to see them as adversarial with particular attention paid on the Senkaku Islands. And from Korea's perspective, you know, this is, I think they're in the, the most difficult position because they're going to require Chinese influence to deal with their security threat in, in North Korea. And so it's looking like right now that there's going to be an incoming administration in South Korea that's probably going to be a little bit more liberal leaning. It's gonna be probably one of the opposition, opposition candidates and what they're going to do is they're going to try to move closer to China. The problem is, is that within the Trump administration, if you look at a lot of the, the people who are rumored to be taking relatively senior positions, they are quite notably China hawks. And I've heard said in meetings where, you know, South Korea needs to choose. You know, if it's, if it's moving closer to China, then it needs to go with China. But if it's not, then it needs to choose the U.S. And that is a frightening prospect because that sends a message not only to South Korea, but to a lot of the other places where the U.S. has allies, particularly in Southeast Asia, where with President Duterte in the Philippines, he's kind of starting to distance himself from the U.S. and playing the game of, well, who can I get more from and who's going to give me the best deal? And the same thing is going could start to happen in Thailand. And so there will be consequences. Now, are those things are those things a consequence of a Trump presidency? It's not so clear to me that that it is a direct consequence. I think it's somewhat natural to see that, well, for a very long time, the U.S. had had an, an agenda to push. It was pushing liberal order, and that greatly annoyed many of, of our allies, the fact that we were basing our participation on the fact that they were going to have to do certain things or check off certain boxes with regards to human rights and other things along those lines. And now they have a partner coming in in China saying that, well, we're still willing to do business with you even if you don't do those things. So whether or not this is a Trump of or a consequence of a Trump presidency is unclear. See, to me, I'm going to have to disagree with you on that. Um, and I've spent a, you know a lot of the last ten years in Asia, and to a person, especially behind closed doors, people would say they were concerned about China. They appreciated the U.S. pressure. They appreciated U.S. leadership on open and free trade. And more than anything else, they appreciated the presence of the U.S. military in the region. And they were deeply worried about China. They were worried about the way that China does business. They were worried about the way that strings come attached with Chinese development programs. They don't like the way Chinese contractors operate when they're building major infrastructure programs. So having said all of that, having s talked about how many countries in the region really appreciate the U.S., they cannot survive in a vacuum. And that is the, the, the situation that we have now. If they only listen to President-elect Trump's comments about pulling back and moving our troops out of Japan or moving our troops out of Korea, if they only listen to that, they're going to get scared. 
and they're going to need to find someone else to help them feel secure. And that other country is going to be China. Interestingly, though, President Trump has also, President-elect Trump, has also said that he is going to significantly enlarge the size of the Navy. And where are all those ships going to go? Well, the most logical place for many of them to go is into the Pacific, largest ocean, um, historically very important to the U.S. Navy. So perhaps some of his earlier comments about pulling back from Asia need to be filtered through the fact that he also seems to be committed to a much larger Navy, which we are really going to need if we are going to fulfill some of our treaty commitments in in East Asia. It's, it's quite clear we don't have the resources anymore to focus on what's happening in Europe, to focus on what's happening in the Middle East, and to counter whatever is going on in Asia. Yeah, and I don't think I buy the rhetoric from him that he's going to pull back from Asia. I mean, if you if you look and if you're going to take a hard line on China, you're going to have to dedicate a significant number of resources there. And then so suddenly, I think that's one thing that these our allies in the region are, are somewhat taking, you know, taking to to heart is that if you're going to have a hard line stance on China, then they can kind of guess though you can't go hard line in China and then hard line on South Korea for for the payments for, for burden sharing and Japan. So you're going to need your allies at some point to come in on some of these other issues. So I think that's one of the lessons that they're drawing from this. So you've touched on this a little bit, but uh, what is China's opportunity or response here? You know, she was just in, the leader of China was just today, made a big speech at the World Economic Forum, where he basically said, you care about globalization. The U.S. is backing off from globalization. I'll be your champion of globalization. And Cecile, you touched a little bit of this when you talked about the failure of the, the TTP. But what might we see out of China? And is there an opportunity for China to take advantage of the uncertainty, right? Around this table, we can't figure out what's right. going on. But to take advantage of this uncertainty in order to assume a much greater leadership position in the region? Yeah, I think it gives them the chance to, to present themselves as a normative power, that they're not trying to disrupt the, the international order, that they're not trying to, you know, be a coercive power, that for once they can be normative. You know, they, they had this uh, chance in the South China Sea where the permanent court of arbitration came out and basically... Uh, annulled China's claim to the whole South China Sea, the nine dash line, uh, the whole bit. And the Philippines has since come out, and the Philippines was one of the, the, the actual country that brought the case to the PCA. And you expected to see the Philippines perhaps flaunted a bit, but immediately they made a deal with China. China was willing to come together to make a deal on this, to make sure that there were shared access for now, that may change later, but for now, shared access to the to the disputed territories. And so it makes China, gives them this chance to say, look, we're not the bad guy that, that the U.S. is painting us to be. You know, then he goes to, uh, President Xi goes to Davos and makes a very, like a very speech, a very good speech saying that, you know, we are here as a global player and we are in favor of globalization and free trade. And so in that U.S. vacuum, it gives China that chance to be the normative power. The challenge will be to see if they can maintain that over time. And let's just say that the world needs China to be a positive force. And I think that most people would welcome China being more of a positive force throughout Asia. Certainly, China is part of Asia. There is no denying that. The challenge that China faces is that its internal situation is still very, very difficult. And whenever China takes a foreign policy action, we need to ask, its, ask ourselves, are they taking this action for the betterment of the region, or are they taking this action to help secure themselves at home because they are worried about unrest or worse in the street? 
China has a lot of air pollution right now. People are very upset about it. There's a huge corruption problem in the country. People are very upset about it. I read some amazing figures on the number of anti-government demonstrations in China every year. It's in the hundreds of thousands. It's quite incredible. And so to a certain degree, China tends to use nationalism as a way to unite the country and to tamp down some of this unrest. That's probably one of the reasons that they sent an aircraft carrier near Taiwan recently. Caused a lot of pride in the Chinese, among the Chinese people and helped to deflect from some of their very real complaints, particularly during the wintertime when air pollution is at its worst in China. So while I hope that China is really prepared to be a force for good in, in, in Asia, and certainly I would welcome that, you always have to ask yourself, are there other reasons that they are doing this? And are there dangerous possibilities to those reasons, such as if things got bad enough inside China in terms of internal stability, would China attack Taiwan? Would China attack Japan in order to get people at home to rally around the flag? I think that is the single most dangerous scenario that we have to worry about. Those are some pretty provocative possibilities. And our entire conversation has been about the uncertainty we face today. Certainly, Asia's an incredibly important region of the world, and we will be revisiting um, this this topic uh, again many times over. As we close, I want to ask each of you, what is one piece of conventional wisdom that you think is most wrong-headed about our understanding of Asian security? And I, I think that this is something Cecile touched on at the beginning, that the fact that the, the, our Asian partners don't pay their fair share. This is something that came up during the campaign, and the comparison was always with NATO. The fact that NATO is underpaying, and even a fact like underpaying to the to the agreement that it ha it has in place, but our our allies in Asia are really are really uh, ponying up. The fact that Japan pays about 50% of, of the stationing costs, Korea does about the same, and I think there's just a general misunderstanding about how much the U.S. spends overall uh, in terms of overseas basing. You know, if you look at that in terms of the overall budget for the Defense Department which is astronomical, it's something like $10 billion is spent on overseas basing. And a lot of that is actually made up by our, our Asian allies. And so, you know, you think about that in terms of what it costs for the F-35. Just the F-35 is going to be a $1 trillion program. And here we have a president-elect saying that, well, we don't have room in our, we need every single billion dollars. Well, if you look just at the domestic side, there's ample room for, for savings to be made. So the fact that that our, our Asia partners do actually pay a pretty good sum for their own defense, I think, is one of the, the most wrong-headed uh, understandings about Asia right now. Cecile, conventional wisdom that you'd like to challenge? I think President-elect Trump and a big portion of his cabinet are businessmen. And as businessmen and women, they will understand um, price versus benefit or cost versus benefit. The cost of our being engaged in Asia economically in terms of people-to-people -people exchanges and in terms of security have been infinitesimal when you compare it to the benefits. The economic benefits, the fact that our young men and women have not had to fight a major war involving multiple countries in Asia, and the fact that we are still popular in that region after all of these years. We are looked at as the one indispensable country in Asia. And the fact that so many people in Asia are so concerned over what this administration is going to do in the future is a sign 
of the trust that they have in us and the faith that they have in us. And we need to stop and think very hard about how we want the, our future with Asia to look because our decisions now are going to affect the world that our children live in. Well, I look forward to continuing the conversation with you as, as events unfold. I want to, for now, say thank you, Cecile. Thank you, Carl, for being here. It was a terrific conversation. And thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Deep Dish. Please note that the opinions you heard today belong to those who express them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please share this episode with somebody in your friend group or your family who will like it. Uh, it helps us and helps the work that we're doing at the Chicago Council. You can find our show on iTunes under Deep Dish and on the Council's website at thechicagocouncil.org. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll talk to you next week for another slice of Deep Dish. Mm-hmm.